For all you foodies out there, I'm unwrapping a McDonald's steak, egg, and cheese bagel. Ooh, look at this steak. And the juice running down the side. Got a little bit on the wrapper here. Mmm. And then the fluffy egg and real cheese folded over the side looking just so good. Mmm, mmm. Grilled onions and a butter bagel, too. Thumbs up for McDonald's steak, egg, and cheese bagel for breakfast. Love it. Mmm. I participate in McDonald's. Welcome to Journey On. I'm DJ Burr, the host and executive producer. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. This podcast is for male survivors of sexual abuse and assault who want to experience a life worth living beyond a tragic past. I'm a survivor just like you, and I know the complexity of healing from trauma. I also know the joy that comes from the healing process. Hear our stories and share your own. You are not alone. You too can breathe deep and journey on. I encourage you to visit the Journey On website, www.journeyonpod.com. There you will find a link to sign up for my recovery journey newsletter, learn about my weekend recovery events for male survivors, and my online recovery coaching services for male survivors. If you have questions, concerns, or comments, or would like to be on the show, email me at journeyonpodcast at gmail.com. Journey On is on social media. Tweet us at journeyonpod. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at journeyonpodcast. This week we have a bonus episode. I know it's our first week and I'm just so excited to be able to bring to you another episode. Journey On is a gift and I want to give you this gift each and every episode. So stay tuned for what's next on Journey On. Coming up today, we are talking with John. John is a child abuse survivor and a person in long-term recovery. John is going to give us his experience, strength, and hope around recovering from early childhood abuse and the impacts that has had on his life. Hear his story and share your own. We are not alone. John, uh, thank you for coming to the show today. And uh, Journey On is about male survivors of sexual abuse and assault. And so um, I'm grateful that you had the time to, to meet with me today to talk about your experience, strength, and hope. So, where does your story start, John? Well, um, it starts with, I came from the classic suburban family. My uh, father, uh, for most of my youth, was a, uh, an officer and a gentleman in the Air Force. And my mom was a Southern Belle, and they were homecoming king and queen. And from the exterior, we looked like the you know, classic American family. But... Uh, Inside and at home, there was uh, some stresses and strains. And uh, my uh, father grew up as a very, very, very poor, and the only way he got to school was on a ROTC scholarship. And my mom was a farmer's daughter, not very educated at all in the ways of uh, uh, sex or even being a, a woman and a mother. And uh, there was a lot of dysfunction in her family. I think. Uh, she always claimed she was her daddy's special girl, but she could never explain why. And I think that her dad was more emotionally attached to her than the mom. So that, you know, the mom and the daughter were competing with each other for attention. And my grandparents never showed each other any emotion other than arguing. You know, they were big Italian, you know, first uh, generation in America. And 
they spoke pretty heavy accents and they were farmers in the south and my dad's family um, his his father was an alcoholic and uh, died when he was 11 from drinking bad booze from a still that, that had re previously made him go blind but he couldn't stop so uh sounds like an alcoholic yeah very much so my dad was an alcoholic his his dad was an alcoholic his brother was an alcoholic my brother was an alcoholic and i don't drink anymore <laughs> <laughs> okay but um after um i did a bunch of work i was a seeker i did a bunch of a, a bunch of stuff a lot of drinking and drugs growing up a lot of uh outlandish behaviors i traveled the world uh, a lot before i was even 20 i was living i mean i was eight after high school i was living in europe for a couple of years and making my own way and um and then at different times i'd go to college for a while and then i'd break away and go to go to mexico come back go to maine i just i was really unrooted after having a living a life of uh, moving around as a kid but i had done for i finally decided to settle down in uh, arizona where my family was living and worked in the family business and yet my life kept things kept falling apart and I couldn't figure out what and I spent a lot of time in therapy doing belonging to a uh, men's organization I had done all kinds of stuff trying to figure out what was wrong what wasn't right and I uncovered that I had been abused as a kid with uh, after, through extensive therapy uh, kind of gestalt therapy shuttling whatever you want to call it yeah. and uh, and I never wanted to face who it was years it was always I was abused the only, one memory of abuse that I uncovered at home was that a memory of being abused in the shower and there was some I was standing in the bathroom cold and wet the shower was running and there was somebody in there and I couldn't figure out why, why I was stand, standing there kind of petrified but I wasn't clean why was I out of the shower if I wasn't clean why was I not getting dried off why was it you know what 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 and it was because i had uh um my dad was in the shower and i had broken free and gotten out and he was trying to get me to perform a sexual act and yeah. um and i have uh, a lot of vague kind of gray foggy memories that i can't discern but at that period in my life I slept incredibly late. I would wake up if somebody's pants legs rubbed together walking into the room. Um, I had wet the bed until very late. And part of it was because I would never want to go to sleep because I didn't want to be molested. Yeah, it sounds like you were frightened. Yeah, and I would, and so, uh, and then the other abuse was happened in church at church with I was raised Catholic and I was studied to be an altar boy and my mom was never on time picking me up I don't know whether the priest told her to come later or whether she was late she's chronically late all, all the time anyway and she's kind of a narcissist and not really concerned about her commitments to others but uh, that um, kind of threw me off religion for a long time and uh so you were molested. I was molested at yeah probably one of you that period was uh, I think I was 11 so at 11 years old you were molested by a 
visiting young priest, or not, I don't know, visiting, maybe new, I think he was new, and where I had to learn the, the take Altenburg classes wasn't even a regular church. It was somewhere across town. It was kind of like there was no roots or connection with these people. Yeah. And then when I decided, to, when I said I'd not go on anymore, nobody ever asked me why. When I I'd finished being an altar boy, taking the classes, but I never went and did the, you know, was an altar boy during the services. Nobody ever asked me why. Hmm. They just accepted that. It was just like, something happened. I don't know. It, didn't, it was, you know, I, my family was kind of weird. When I was around them, they were very hyper uh, micromanaging. My mom was super helicopter, like, do this, do that. Never, you just, you know, but when I wasn't, they were, it was like out of sight, out of mind. When I was 14, a buddy of mine and I went, and we went camping. We went floating down a river for five days, and his parents thought I was with, or he was with my family, and my parents thought I was with his family. It was just me and him on a river in Virginia. For five days. And it was, and we got all kinds of adventures, including having guns pulled on us by some hillbillies. We almost got stomped by bulls wow. one night. But so it was this weird juxtaposition of, you know, when we're away, we could do whatever we wanted. But when we were close, my mom was always in my face. So it was kind of, I never wanted to be close because it was always too much. Yeah, sure. And my dad was the typical work, all, you know, workaholic, always be gone. And, um, now, you, you talked about being in the shower with, with your dad. How old were you? That was around the. That might have been eight or nine. You know? So is that the first time? I don't. I, I have. I have no clear memories other than those two. Okay. And it's kind of like I spend my time. I know there were more because, yeah. because my dad was a horribly repressed drinker, kind of a you know Faulknerian <laughs> sort of Southern repressed guy. He, he had, you know, no emotions, no emotions, no emotions, and volcanic explosions. Wow. And, uh, our, the, and so I feel like that, you know, when I, I'm, like, trying to find the elephant in the room of abuse, and I can, I've only found those two little pieces, which aren't that little. With the priest, it was actually, I was completely naked. He was touching me, and he was telling me stuff like, uh, you know, if it, feels good, wouldn't God want you to do it? Which was kind of, you know, co-opting yeah. my belief in God. And right. Co-opting his authority, or not co-opting, but misusing his authority and, or his role. And it really poisoned me. And so when you say poison, does that mean that it damaged your relationship with God? With God, with any, well actually, um, between the two of them, with any authority figures, I just went my own way from that point on. Um, I I ran my own show. I mean, I, you know, there was, um, in, in my family, okay, my dad wasn't emotionally available to my mom. My mom emotionally incested me, was always talking to me about how her, her husband wasn't emotionally available and what, and I was the sensitive one. And, and I was like trying, I finally, you know, I was about 16 and she's talking to me about my dad's shortcomings. And I'm like saying, well, why don't you go to a movie with the neighbor? Why don't you go do why don't you go to the movie by yourself? Why don't you do, you know, do, and she couldn't, and she would always slam down any idea. 
I said, well, just divorce him. You know? And she's like, well, I can't do that. And I'm like, well, look, I'm only 16. Leave me alone. And she's like following me through the house, trying to tell me how, uh, you know, the lack of, in my, of my dad. And, yeah. And so, then, yeah. And sounds then, like she wanted you to fix it somehow. Yeah. And then years later, my dad was a business, retired from the military, business owner, owned a couple of businesses, had, you know, 30, 40 guys working for him, and every now and then he'd get really drunk. And one time, uh, I had to go get him out of jail. Mom calls me and says, you know, can you go get your dad out of jail? And I go, sure, what happened? He goes, I don't know. So I go drive across town and get him, get my dad. And I go, what happened? And he said, well, this guy wouldn't stop talking to me. And I go, so? Well, I did. So I hit him. And then he was a friend of the bartenders, and they called the police. And I mean, a typical sort of non-answer, answer, non-explanation that doesn't get below the surface. And But anyway, about I'm, a couple of days later, my mom's going, talking to me on the phone and saying, well, what kind of a bar was it? And I go, what do you mean? And she's like, well, what kind of a bar was it? And she wouldn't clarify, but she was, I'm, I'm guessing she meant titty bar or gay bar or something that was you know, not spoken of in our family. And it was, and it was, I said, it's just a dive bar. Yeah, but what kind of a bar? What's, who are the people that go there? And I go, what, what who are, who do you think, mom? You know, because I want her to like express her fears or say exactly what it is, you know, because here she wants me to throw my dad under the bus for her fears. You know what I mean? And I'm yeah. put in this weird position. So I just basically said, you tell me what you're thinking. Tell me, tell me what's the statement underneath the question. She would never do it. So my family, my mom and dad were locked into this impasse of her not getting what she wanted, him being repressed, something. Yeah. And uh, and I was sort of the mediator. And no, I, you know, I was like, no. You know, so, uh, wow, it sounds like your, your parents placed you in the, right in the middle of yeah. their chaos. Right. And yeah. involved you in many different ways. Right. I was sort of robbed of my childhood and became sort of the, Something I was, and I was also the sort of the thoughtful one, the thinker, the whatever. My, I, I was really good at school, and my mom's sister was, uh, well, a single mom because her husband used to beat her, and he was the chief of police in the small town where my mom came from, so nobody ever stopped him. So kind of creep. So she studied to be a, a teacher, but. I used to take her tests for I did I'd write her book reports and analyzing children's books when I was like 11 or 12 years old. And uh, when I was in 6th grade my teacher used to have me sit in class and do take her math tests to be certified in new math while she read to the kids outside under a tree. And I would like sometimes look up out the window and see the big old tree and all the kids sitting under it in the shade and it looked really nice and I was sitting in here taking you know a test that was for an adult and I kind of so you know it's kind of like my I covered up the abuse by overperforming by you know going all into my intellect and going all into my uh, you know being a smart ally smart guy whatever and serving a number of years. Yeah, so you covered the view so much so that you weren't able to uncover it until you were an adult. Right. I had nine years of extensive therapy 
working on stuff. And it took me about five or six years to start telling the truth to my therapist. <laughs> okay. Because I was a full-on sex love addict that, uh, you know, I grew up in a house full of secrets. Apparently, my dad did stuff that my mom wondered about. My mom could never talk to my dad, you know, about it. And so I learned to not talk to people about my problems. So I'd go in and talk to this guy and think I was covering stuff. And, but I wasn't until I, I started telling the truth. And uh, I uh, ended up getting a divorce from my first wife because full on, you know, I was unfaithful and I was uh, emotionally unavailable. And we, and so, and I was gonna, and I, and then I, before I'd started, uh, I'd, I'd started a new relationship, but before we got married, I finally said, I got to tell this guy everything so I can try to figure this out. And that's when we started uncovering. Would you say that your sex and love addiction is related to the abuse? Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's like, uh, you know, I, there's a diagram that kind of explained to me a lot of my character defects and a lot of my, uh, in, uh, inability to control impulses around, uh, wanting to drink or drug or eat or sex, you know, self-medicate in many different ways. And it's that tree of addiction thing where there's this, all the branches are different forms of addiction, whether it's sex, alcohol, gambling, the, and the trunk is codependency. Yeah. The root of, and then the root of that is abuse, childhood abuse, neglect, trauma, you know, which I think I've had all of them, you know, just, uh, um, we moved a lot. I was friends with my uh, my sis, two older sisters and younger brother. We were very, very close. Um, my brother and I um, kind of experimented sexually when we were little, and that sort of traumatized him. But he could never talk about it until we were in the, in our thirties or something. And I didn't realize how traumatic that was. But you know, some people hold you know that touching another male is bad or whatever sure, he yeah. was and we were experimenting we were like 10 or 11 and, uh, um, but it wasn't traumatizing for you no we no we were actually we were just talking about it and touching each other and it was consensual we were asking um and we were one one year apart so we weren't it wasn't like there was a power huge power differential or anything sure. but, but I do feel some shame because I was the older one so I feel like I I'm responsible because one year although not a lot now when you're younger that's more important you know feel seems you know older brother younger brother but uh, I wonder if that happened after the abuse or something from your father well that happened either after oh yeah it was that that was after that was actually it might have because the house we were in was the next house. So, you know, I believe that most sexual activity before puberty is learned. Yeah. It's not natural outgrowth of human experience. So, and I, you know, I don't think at that point I had an orgasm. So I didn't know, you know. Sure. So, and I kind of think that puberty is around the time your sex organs and your body changes I don't I don't know uh, the physiology or the medical part of it but, well I think some people yeah. you know it, it depends yeah. you know, a variety of uh, things I think influence the, the sexual development but it, it definitely sounds like you were 
mirror, you know, that behavior that you suffered from, you know, the abuse you suffered from your father, you might have acted that out with your brother. I kind of think that's what we were, yeah, because I I had said, I thought I might be gay, even, and uh, to my brother, and he's like, well, do you want to try, or let's, you know, touch each other and see, you know, and then I didn't even know what to do, I didn't get a erection, you know, we were kind of laying together, you know, like two little kids, like playing doctor, but not really doing, you know, and then we go, oh, that doesn't work. Okay. Okay. That was the end. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And it was, but it just, but it, yeah, but it, you know, I I can say that now with ease or somewhat ease, but for many years I had a lot of shame about it. And until he and I talked about it, he never expressed it to another person. Hmm. And he felt, he held a lot of shame about it. And how are the how's your relationship with him now? Well, he died. Oh, he died. He died yeah, a few years ago of uh, his liver shut down from he couldn't stop drinking and uh, and drugging and he was uh, uh, yeah. So he was medicating too. Yeah. yeah. It's it's sad when abuse happens, especially um, you know when things happen that are out of our control. And we have to find ways to, to medicate that, that pain, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm curious, what are all the ways that you learned to medicate? Um, one of the ways was, uh, it doesn't sound uh, simple, or, but I used to travel every couple of years. My family stopped moving, and my dad retired from the military and started businesses, and I kept rickshaying around the world every couple of years. And that, you know, and it was also whenever relationships got tough, sometimes boing, I was out of there, I'd go to, I went to Maine on a vacation and I ended up staying and having my family mail my tools to me and, oh, and wow. I got lived up there for a couple of years. I, w- I went down to Mexico on an exchange program with my college for one semester. The day the semester was over, I went out and got an apartment, decided to stay and, you know, live there another year and a half. And, uh, and I just kept, and then after the magic of the, I, those are geographic fixes that yeah. don't ever work. You know, I'd go someplace and then the magic wears off and I'd come back or I'd go, you know, go somewhere else. So I was just ricocheting around the world, avoiding myself. That was one way. Another way was uh, I drank a lot. Um, I, uh, I medicated with food and entertainment and I became quite a foodie. I was involved in the hospitality business, uh, building restaurants and that kind of thing and I so I was always at the latest restaurant bar celebrity chef and acting like a big shot who's sort of you know was one or acting like you know one of the cool people being in that sort of uh swaged my ego or fed my ego and you know the, the feelings of abuse less than inadequacy were covered up by being a gadfly um the other way was with sex. I, I had, I did not believe I could get my needs met in any relationship. I was never honest or truthful in any relationship, and I was unfaithful. And uh, that goes with with friends, girlfriends, boy, guy friends, whoever. I was uh, just anything that moved, especially when I was traveling and out of town, which I was a lot for work and and vacation I did a lot of travel back in my youth and what were the consequences of, of oh, the self-medicating 
education. Well, there's a lot of damage. Um, there's a young boy that I raised in from my first marriage from one until the age of 11. And uh, he and his, his mother and I were married uh, for seven years and we got divorced. And um, even though uh, I helped him even after he was out of my life, I helped support him through high school and had a college fund for him and stuff. He hasn't spoken to me for the last 10 years. And I feel like he's a stepson, but he has a, he has a, a father who's alive. So I don't really, I never adopted him. I didn't, you know, I've, you know that kind of thing. But yeah, you raised, him. yeah, I raised him or helped raise him, and uh, he's very upset with me, my behavior, or something, and he can't even talk to me about it. And uh, and and I pretty much blew up my first family. I blew up my uh, a business that I owned. Um, I've gone through a couple. I've gone through more money than I thought I would ever have in my life. And uh, I could be, uh, what's the, I could be retired by now, but I, I still got to do some work. Yeah. Still got to work. Yeah, so the consequences in every aspect, you know, financially, uh, in relationships, in family, it's been, it, there's a lot of wreckage due to the abuse and due to the trying to, trying to medicate against it under the table or where people aren't looking. And the other way is work. I used to work like a fiend. What I used to explain is I'd show people my hand and I'd go, you know, because I'd go, this is my work addiction. This is what I do when people are looking and then show the back of the hand and the sex addiction is what I do when people aren't looking. Back side. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so I'm assuming that the tides turn and you got into therapy and got some clarity about the abuse. Um, can you talk about how that impacted you and what you did after learning? Yeah. Well, first, uh, I did. I was doing some men's work, which was uh, very helpful in many ways because it got me in touch with feelings. It helped me get in touch. It helped me do the work to to uncover and own the abuse, and also uncover and own some of the behaviors. But men's work alone is not a substitute for either 12-step or uh, focused addictions counseling. And so in some ways, I thought I was doing my work, and I didn't really get at the heart of the matter. So for about a dozen years, I'm doing my work, I think, but the acting out didn't stop. The infidelity in my current marriage didn't stop, so I was still lying. I was still doing, you know, little cheats here and there in life because it doesn't just limit itself if you're, you know, if you're medicating. If I'm medicating kind of off the books, I'm doing other things off the books too. And uh, so the men's work we didn't have the discipline because we're all kind of in a, it's like a men's group and we're all equal, but there's no facilitator and there's no focus and you can think we're doing work and we can think we're holding each other's feet to the fire, but really sometimes we're just co-signing each other's bullshit. Mm. And uh, so that's kind of the danger of not having a a focus on on the group of sobriety or, you know, truth telling, you know, Uh, and uh, then, so I finally got involved in therapy. I mean, in, uh, an addictions counseling process focused on my 
sex addiction, my love addiction. And that I finally owned that my dad was an alcoholic, my brother was an alcoholic, his brother was an alcoholic, his dad was an alcoholic. I pro- and my sister is, my oldest sister. Yeah. I probably have yeah. some problem with that. You know, it's the old adage, kind of like if you think you have a problem with green beans and you don't, and you're not sure you have a problem with green beans. Well, most people just eat green beans and don't think about it, right? right. Well, if you think there might be a problem, there probably is. There probably is. You know, because it's benign for other people. And if it's not benign for me, then okay, what am I attaching to the green beans or what am I, how, why am I hoarding them or why am I gorging or whatever? So, um, so I, so I've uh, stopped drinking. I've, uh, I, I, w- I went to an accountability circle, which is one of the best things that helped my sobriety um, and my recovery. And that's in addition to going to a lot of meetings and having a sponsor, is sitting around with a bunch of men and calling each other on our, uh, on, specifically on our uh, sobriety and our program, you know, or lack of sobriety program. Because sometimes you, we, you, you would own, hey, I masturbated or hey I did this you know depending on what your bottom lines are okay and the accountability circle which was facilitated for a number of years four years was really the key to it and uh, and now I don't belong to one of those circles but I co-facilitate one I show up for guys I do a lot of service with a bunch of other people so I'm constantly confronted with other uh, addicts or alcoholics and I can I have to moderate and modulate myself and my ego in that case when you're doing service you know sometimes somebody's in a worse place and sometimes somebody has something to give you and so it's constantly right-sizing me and that's my uh, my sobriety is is is, uh, based on me being able to be equal to you and other people not try to power down get up above it power down or feel like a piece of shit or less than okay. and uh, I was used to my life previous when I the, the, the 11 or 12 years when I was with my men's group I was vacillating between those two and I wasn't spending time in the equal ground you know yeah. it's important yeah you know, I see yourself as either one up or one down right yeah, and that was really hard for me because I'd always worked for myself, so I was always bossing other people around. <laughs> and I came to believe that I had better ideas than people because of my upbringing. You know, I was yeah. taking my aunt's tests and my teacher's tests for them. Right. And so, but what really happened, what my work situation was, I was always the boss, and people would say, oh, that's a great idea, but it was mainly because I signed their paychecks. But I started to believe the bull that they were feeding me, you know, because they're just being nice or polite to their boss, you know, and saying, yeah, whatever. You know, when your boss tells you to do something, you go, yes, boss, and you go do it, right? Well, that's what they were doing. But I was thinking it was because I was brilliant. Well, no, I needed to. I wasn't. I'm not any smarter than the next guy. In fact, in a lot of ways, I'm not. You know, they, they people learned lessons at an earlier age that I didn't, you know. So I'm having to relearn my childhood and re reparent that little guy well it sounds like you are active in that reparenting for yourself and i 
think that's a, a huge thing to, to focus on in any type of recovery, whether it's recovery from sexual abuse and assault or uh, recovery from alcoholism or any other addictions, like we have to go back and reparent ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes, uh, most of the times we miss valuable information either because our parents didn't know it or they didn't know how to communicate it. Right. Right. And so I'm hearing that you spent a great bit of time doing I spent, a, yeah, hundreds, if that, probably thousands of hours learning the le- learning uh, what most people learn in kindergarten, you know, how to be nice to other people and considerate and not be uh, self-absorbed. I was self-absorbed in my first marriage. I was self-absorbed even as a father then, to, and I was self-absorbed in, and I was going to be losing my 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 other two children's love because it was only my reality that I was letting them have when we were having a conversation when I was little before I got fully re- in full recovery and got through the denial and and started to take my ego down several notches um, and you know I have a good relation with my younger two boys and that's that, good to hear yeah and they're 27 and 23 and they call for advice every now and then where before they were like don't I don't want to talk about it dad <laughs> Because they knew I would just, I wouldn't listen, and there was no give and take. And I remember the first time my uh, old, my uh, my oldest uh, son by blood asked me, you know, about girls, and I said, well, you know, I haven't been too good in that department. And that was like a watershed moment for me and him that he actually tentatively asked for some help, and I was able to say, well, I don't, I'm not really sure. Instead of saying, do this, do that, you know, I didn't give them prescriptive things. Right. And we just had a conversation. Sounds like some authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. And so, the more, you know, the and the reparenting thing, when I was just doing the men's work without the focus on addictions counseling and the real meat of the matter, um, I knew, I, I discovered the inner child and he was abused and I'd known that from therapy, but I just kind of let him go, run amok. I didn't, I didn't face him. I didn't face all of his feelings of abuse or whatever. And I basically just put blinders on and said, "Go do," you know. And then my my acting out, my addictions got worse. So I was doing all this work, and I had all this language, but, but I was lying because I wasn't facing that little guy because I hated him. Yeah, he was gangly and and he was still weak, being ignored. And he was being ignored. Exactly. I did to him. I you know I re I, re, I relived the abuse or the neglect that I had growing up yeah. to myself. And I I used to get colds and flu like five, six, seven times a year because I was just pushing myself in work. And then after I worked so hard, I'd have forty eight hours by Wednesday, you know, and then I'd go act out and I wouldn't get no sleep. And then of course I'd come down with the cold and be back in the office or whatever, you know, it's, and so I was, yeah, not only neglecting the metaphysical self, the real self. And Our bodies can only take so much. Yeah. So it, it, can you talk about um, how much time and what specifically you've done to um, learn to love yourself again, or maybe even for the first time during this reparenting? Wow. Well, when I first uh, kind of 
the first couple of years of when I first discovered this inner child and I actually kind of embraced him and talked to him a little was 1997. But I don't think I really started to reparent him until about seven years ago. So in that interim time, I had an on-again, off-again relationship. I was learned, going through therapy. I was doing some men's work, but I wasn't focused on my own character defects, my own addiction, my own saying, hey, I, I might be an alcoholic, or I am an alcoholic, or I might be a sex addict, or I am a sex addict. I was kind of just doing the usual talk therapy kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, you know, in the, and in the last seven years, I've it's been a lot of, a lot of meetings and a pretty strong program and sometimes in order to get to a meeting because I, I in my work I drive up and down the northwest um, sometimes I'd have to drive 90 miles to get to a meeting but I would do it so you would do it. most of the time at least once a week I drive 40 50 miles to a meeting to, to go to meetings and so going to meetings is a way that you demonstrate love for yourself because you're, you're yeah. not avoiding Right. You're engaging. Yeah. What's helpful for you? It's helpful, and it's also um, when I go to these meetings, it's uh, I'm open. I have a uh, access to all of my feelings, um, and uh, I'm dealing with some family health issues that I have a lot of sadness about. And sadness was the one feeling that I would not let myself have through most of my growing up phase. That you know, it's like if you if I stuck my lip out as a kid, you know, my family would make fun of it, calling it a front porch, or say, "What are you sad about?" I'll give you something to be sad about, you know. So sadness, don't show it, you know. Don't show it. And then fear, nope, you know, we all, you know, don't show your fear. Dogs can smell it, you know. So I grew up thinking I had no fear, which was a lie. Fear was running the boat for me. That whole show behind the scenes, unknown to me. And sadness was a thing to be avoided at all costs. And so the only feeling I had left was either joy, which was joy from acting out or imbibing or this sort of false jocularity, you know, entertain myself, use my friends for entertainment, use people for entertainment, or anger. And those are the only two, you know, so I had this false jocularity or anger or nothing. And so safety was nothing, actually, was that's, but it, that was boring when I was in my addictions. So you, I want to get out. So how do you get out? Well, you, I can be, you know, get out, use, use anger to get adrenaline and get things done. I, you know, I was constantly late to things. I would use adrenaline that way to get to meetings and do stuff. I overbooked myself to not act out. You know, I was using the work to modulate the sex addiction, you know, kind of thing. So it's kind of like, you know, using beer to not drink whiskey. You know? Yeah, yeah. Not, not going to help you. No, didn't help at all. Didn't help at all. So I, I was really busy running around like a chicken with my head cut off, making money and being a father and not doing any of it very well. Then there was a lot of drama, you know. Of course, there was drama. And if there wasn't drama, they'd have to make some. So the way I... Uh, Started to be, yeah, go to meetings uh, and doing 90 and 90 days. And I was sitting in a meeting and uh, about the third or fourth day of doing 90 and 90. And that to me was when I was 
I was recommended to do that by my sponsor. I finally had said I'm going to do what he says because nothing else was working and I was getting suicidal even though I couldn't figure out why because nothing had changed. But I would just be driving home at night, late at night from working too much and the freeway's dark and I would just, there'd be a curve coming up and I would think I'd be better if I just drove straight. Thought. It was like like the sirens of old, you know, luring the sailors to the rocks. I don't know what. It was just kind of, uh, you know, this lulling voice, like just to end the endless cycling of thoughts or something. Sounds like depression. Yeah, it was probably it was probably depression masked by drinking and other, and working and other stuff. And uh, so I finally, when I, you know, I finally gave myself over to the simple quotes program of uh, 12 step. I said, okay, I'll do what I'm told, you know, and that was really hard for me to do what I told because I was used to running my own show since I was, you know, a kid. A kid yeah. And, uh, I mean, my first job, I worked for myself. I was a paper boy, you know, and then after that, I always was working for myself. And, um, so I, uh, Went to 90 and 90, and about a few days into it, there was a guy in a meeting. He just crawled out from under a bridge. He was a homeless guy. He was, went to this early morning meeting just to get a hot cup of coffee so he could get his fingers working again. And he's holding this coffee like it's the Holy Grail, you know, this sacred coffee. And he, But when he talked, he sounded alternately mad, crazy, and brilliant, you know, like some people are. And he sounded exactly like my brother, my crazy brother who died from drinking and drugging and, and I realized in that moment that I'm not different than him I'd always claimed I was different than my brother because my brother was barely had a house and for a long period of his life was homeless and I had three homes at that time and so I would on the outside I looked different but I realized on the inside he and I are brothers that crazy guy that just crawled out from under the bridge and me are brothers we're just the same and in that moment I, re- I got off my high horse climbed out of down from my grandiosity and accepted that I was as messed up of a human as that guy right there we're at the same meeting and uh, that's when I attribute my recovery to starting and that was that was actually uh, nine and a half years ago um, but I, I have seven years of sobriety because I did have a, a slip a couple of years later. In the... Well, congratulations on your seven years. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious if there has been uh, forgiveness for your father, for the priest, for yourself. The priest, no. I have. I still have a very hard time with any organized religion. I'm not very... Uh, um, I, but that... That also was a very big problem for me to find a, to give myself over to a higher power. I couldn't figure out what to do. I can imagine why. You know, God to me was, uh, you know, God and religion were bound up. And and I would always think, you know, God was this story from the Bible of this guy in a flowing robe sitting on a cloud, whatever. And he was being manipulated or co-opted by these institutions that were abusing young kids. And so... Um, it took me a long time in 12 step to come up with one and I have and it's and it's pretty evidence based it's it's actually the wisdom of the group okay and it's called group consciousness which we say a lot absolutely but the best
best thing is, is that I don't run my own show anymore. I don't make my own decisions. I run them by my group of guys or people call it your board of directors <laughs> or you could call it your network, but um, call my sponsor. Um, if I'm going to make a decision, you know, even, you know, life decisions sometimes, you know, they're not part of the, the 12 steps, but hey, am, am I making this for the right reason or am I just trying to escape my problems? Well, it sounds like you finally have a support system. Yes, this, I, I feel like I do. And in fact, my support system it helps govern, you know, what some of the things, where, whether I'm going to relocate, you know, is do they have a support system there? Do, you know, will can I plug into it or do I want to remake my support system? Yeah. So no more bouncing around without a plan. Right. Yeah, there's not. That's exactly right. And we're at, my wife and I are at the stage in our life where we want to uh, evolve to a, retirement phase and where we live has to have a support community absolutely so did you forgive your father i accepted my father uh, for a long time in the first uh, you know dozen or 50 maybe even 20 years of after i uncovered the therapy i demonized him i hated him i don't demonize him anymore i know that he gave me a lot of good traits as well so I think I have accepted him, but he um, he died uh, before all this stuff, before I got through recovery or into recovery. And, uh, he, he died when I was uncovering the the abuse and therapy. And, uh, oh, so I haven't been really, hard. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, he died in front of me of a heart attack. That was traumatizing. So uh, yeah, every time my heart blipped for like a period of five years, I was like, thinking, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah. Your story is remarkable, John. What would you tell our listeners um, who are in recovery, or in, you know, recovering from childhood abuse or sexual assault, even as an adult? What what message could you leave them with before we close? The biggest fear I had um, that why I couldn't face the abuse, why I couldn't face um, my own character defects and problems was that I felt the sadness was too huge that there was no that it was a bottomless pit and one I was I was in a very very difficult situation where a friend of mine who I recommended do this process with men's work and supposedly a good thing he almost died of a heart attack because uh, he was being pushed by the leaders too hard and uh, I really reacted very poorly in front of like 50 people and I was going to shut down the whole process because my friend almost died and I realized that I was making the leaders into bad dad and I uh, finally owned to somebody other than my therapist that I had been abused and in and, and private to the leaders of that process. And um, what I realized was that that was that's when I really hit the bottom of the well because I had acted outrageously in front of 50 people and I had, uh, you know, got a little road rash to, to prove it. And, uh, but, but I felt really good after that. I felt like, okay, I hit the bottom of the well, but the good news is it has a bottom. And I started to come out. So the, the message I would give is that uh, 
you know, go, no matter how scary it is, go towards the fear to get through it with, and do it with guides, do it with, uh, people that are recovered, one, do it with professionals, two, um, do the inner work, do the family of origin work, do the addictions work. I think you got to do them all. You can't just, I was operating, I did one for a while and then another, but you got to do them all kind of together. They come together because one's the root, one's the trunk, and the rest is the tree, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you, John. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your story with us today. It's a very powerful story, and I encourage you to continue doing your work um, because I'm sure more will be revealed. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me, DJ. You're welcome. Journey On is looking to hear from you. If you're interested in sharing your experience, strength, and hope with our audience, email us at journeyonpodcast at gmail.com for details. Journey On's production is currently funded in whole by me as part of my desire to provide support to those who are still suffering. Production costs fluctuate and can be prohibitive in terms of what I can offer to our audience. You can help support Journey On's mission by supporting the production. There are two options. You can donate the amount of your choice directly from your cell phone by texting the word JOURNEY to 855-735-2437 that's J-O-U-R-N-E-Y to 855-735-2437. Or you can become a patron of the show by setting up a monthly contribution by going to patreon.com slash journeyon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-O-N. Once there, you can select the contribution level of your choice. Thank you for considering. Don't forget to visit journeyonpod.com and sign up for my Recovery Journey newsletter. Once you're subscribed, you will get more information about my weekend male survivor retreats and my online coaching services for male survivors. Journey On is produced by DJ Burr and the Recovery Legacy Network, bringing you recovery on all fronts. Learn more at recoverylegacynetwork.com. Today's music features tracks by CDK and Airtone. You can learn more about the tracks on our website, journeyonpod.com. Until next time, breathe deep and journey on. People ask a lot of students. What's your major? What are you going to do with it? What will you do with it for the rest of your life? Too bad they're never the right questions. It shouldn't be what's your major, but what do you want to learn? What do you want to change about the world? At Allegheny, you're more than one major, because when you learn outside the lines, you'll discover perspectives you never knew were possible. Allegheny College. Learn outside the lines. Explore the possibilities at mindovermajor.com. It's time for pumpkin flavors and new fall favorites at Dunkin', and also some tough decisions. Like, do I want a signature pumpkin spice ice latte? A brand new oat milk latte? A new chai latte? Or a pumpkin iced coffee? Oh, and the bakery. Do I want a pumpkin donut or... Uh, there are other people behind you in this drive-thru. Oh, uh, I'll just take it all. Okay. It's all the cozy you crave at Dunkin'. Pumpkin favorites and new fall additions, like new creamy without the dairy oat milk lattes and the signature pumpkin spice ice latte, plus more. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.